Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea, and our special guest today is Sharon Salzberg, best-selling author and teacher of meditation. Today's co-hosts are Reverend Rob Way and Dr. Jose Roman. Thank you for joining us. Sharon, what motivated you to become a meditator? Uh, well, I grew up in Washington Heights, by the way, and uh, went to college uh, in Buffalo, New York, State University of New York at Buffalo. And when I was a sophomore in college, I took an Asian philosophy course, which really, honestly, as far as I can remember, it was kind of happenstance. Like, there was a philosophy requirement. I looked at the schedule. I thought, oh, that's a convenient time. I'll do that one. And it completely changed my life. There were a couple of elements in that class that were very important for me. I, like many people, had had a childhood that was quite disrupted and traumatic. And like for many people, mine was a family system where this was never, ever really spoken about. So there I am in that class and they're talking about, it just happened to be the Buddha. It could have you know, been many people, but in that context, it was the Buddha talking in a very unashamed, unafraid way about the suffering in life. And I think it was the first time in my life that I felt that I belonged. I didn't feel weird. I didn't feel set apart. You know, my family looked so different from other people's families and so on. And and I thought, oh, this is a natural part of life. This is something that to one degree or another we all face. And then I heard in the context of that class that there were these methods, there were techniques that you could use where you could actually become a lot happier, and they were called meditation. So this is 1970, and uh, I looked around Buffalo, New York. I did not see it anywhere. So I created an independent study project and presented it to the university. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And, and they said, okay. So I went off in the fall of 1970 with my student loans and my scholarships and so on and saw it to learn meditation. Wow. So what would you say that meditation has done for you in your life? Well, you know, it's hard to say because I was 18 when I went to India. It's a long way from now, you know, so it's been my life. Um, It's been my entire adult life. And uh, I think if I was going to try to explain myself or describe myself in one word at the age of 18, I would have said fragmented. I was kind of all over the place. You know, I had never really done introspection. I didn't really understand the feelings inside of me. And meditation kind of helped me have a cohesive sense of myself being more centered, having more space from my thoughts and feelings so I could decide for myself 
Is this something I want to take to heart? Is this something I want to develop? Is this something maybe best let go of? Because it was just some kind of crazy baggage that had come, you know, from things I had gone through and weren't really reflecting the truth. Like, you can't do that. Or, you know, uh, don't even think you can do that. Things like that. Sharon, um, in, to some extent, you're alluding to, to the potential answer to this question, but a lot of people feel that you kind of have to be spiritual or you got have to be religious to be a, a meditator or a good meditator. Do you have to be spiritual or religious um, to practice meditation and practice it effectively? I don't think you need to be spiritual or religious necessarily. It's like what I was drawn to myself were some very practical, direct how-to, you know, how to get a little more centered, how to have a different relationship to the feelings that come up within you, how to not get consumed by certain old patterns and have some space from them. And, you know, so it wasn't like spiritual in, in maybe the way we see the word. It was really trying to get more balanced and, and more aware. And I think what you do need, maybe not so much these days, um, you need to be a little bit audacious, you know, because you may not be in a situation where, you say you meditate and people say that's fantastic. You know, like, uh, I mean, even when I came back from India, uh, ultimately in 1974 and I was, uh, my own teacher had told me to teach. So I came back as a teacher. And if I was at a party or some social situation and introduced as a meditation teacher, people would often kind of go, Oh, that's sort of weird, you know, or occasionally somebody would say to me, did you meet the Beatles over there? I'd say, no, sadly, they went when I was in high school and different tradition anyway, but, you know, and to some extent that is quite different now. People understand more about the toll of stress in our bodies and our minds and our relationships. Um, There's more science uh, behind it, um, which is kind of the, the language of our time for many people. And so there may not be quite that sort of a gassed reaction, but still you have to think this is different, you know, and, uh, and I'm willing to try it. I'm willing to make the experiment. I think the consequence of coming to know ourselves more clearly and being able to see more deeply is that we develop a different, different vision of our lives, our sense of purpose, um, stuff about kindness, you know, which for some people may have been always portrayed in terms of their conditioning as kind of a weakness or something sort of mealy-mouthed, you know. And suddenly, because of your own experience of looking within, you see kindness as the greatest of strength. So maybe your priorities shift in life. And there, there are different understandings that come. For example the truth that we live in an interconnected universe, that that's just the truth. That's reality of how things are. We may feel very alone and cut off, but the actual experience of life when we're paying attention is that we are all connected. And many people would call that a spiritual experience. And so um, it's more based on uh, one's own clear seeing. 
I, I use the phrase good meditator. Is there such a thing as a good meditator? I don't think so. I, mean, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad meditator. Let's put it that way. I think if you're doing it, you're doing it well. Um, I feel saved. <laughs> please do. Please enjoy that. You know? uh, I mean, people have a lot of ideas. I certainly had a lot of ideas about what good meditation looked like. And very often they're not that accurate. You know, um, for example, people will often say, well, I'm not a good meditator because I can't stop thinking. You know, I, I can't make my mind blank. But we don't believe that's the purpose of meditation. It's more to change our relationship to our thoughts than to annihilate our thoughts. But most people have that other idea, and so they're continually thinking of themselves as having failed. But you can't fail. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening and trying to bring as much awareness and balance and kindness to every moment of our experience, whatever whatever may be going on. And so in that light, you're not going to fail. Maybe it's sleepiness. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's a rush of thoughts. Maybe it's a rush of negative thoughts. None of that's considered bad meditation, depending on how we're working with it. Wow. So, okay, let's take a moment and drill down a little bit. What is meditation? And, and what's the major goal of meditation? Well, as I was taught, I mean, from the first night I started in this 10-day uh, retreat in India, meditation is like a skills training. It's taking the capacity we have, all of us, in terms of how we pay attention and honing it so that uh, we're more present. If you think about, for example... How often, well, this is like a very old example, obviously. Uh, you know, say you're at a party and uh, you're talking to somebody and you realize you're hardly paying attention to them, that you're thinking about the email you need to write or you're looking around the room thinking who else would be more interesting to talk to. And you realize I'm not even getting a sense of who this person is. And so you stop the distraction for a moment, you gather your attention and you're really present and you really listen. That's a lot of what we do in sort of foundational exercises in meditation. We learn to gather our kind of wild energy and attention that's all over the place. We bring it together and we settle. And over time, what happens is that we have a much greater sense of centeredness. We can do that much more quickly when we realize we're distracted, we can let go gracefully. We can start over. So um, centeredness, resilience, because we're learning how to start over and over and over without blame uh, is another benefit of meditation. We work with, um, as I've been sort of alluding to, all the various things that come up. So maybe it's a very painful feeling that's arising, <coughs> And, you know, rather than blaming ourselves for what we feel or being ashamed of it or trying to push it away, we can approach what's happening with interest and certainly compassion for ourselves and see more deeply into what's going on. So here's one example. I often talk about sitting with my own fear. Um, this would be an example of mindfulness. Usually when we have a strong emotion, 
we're fascinated or even fixated on the circumstance, the story, you know, the external uh, process. We very rarely kind of pivot our attention and say to ourselves, what does fear feel like? You know, what does anger feel like? What does joy feel like? And that's what we do in meditation. So if I sit with fear in that way and I do that pivot, it's like, what does it feel like in my body? And then I got, I get to watch the fear movie. So that means I look for add-ons, you know, this is the only thing I'll ever feel. I'm the only one in the world who ever feels this. What's this going to be like tomorrow? It'll be even worse. Right. And see if I can relinquish the add-ons and just be with the feeling. And then I can see more deeply into it. And an insight I've had on a personal level is that unlike the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, which of course is also true. I'm really afraid when I think I do know, and it's going to be really bad. And it's all the stories that I tell myself, well, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. When I get back to New York, I'm going to turn on the faucet. I'll get Legionnaire's disease. And it's just like, you know, that's when I get really afraid. And that was an important insight because certainly that happens even when I'm not meditating. And if I can see even the beginning of that arc of anxiety, then I can say, you don't know. And then I feel space. You know, so we use attention to be less cluttered to be more gathered, more present, and more interested in our experience so that, so that we learn all the time. Sharon, when people uh, speak of meditation, one of the words that we keep hearing over and over again is mindfulness. So what is the relationship of mindfulness to meditation? Isn't it outrageous? I mean, this is, this is my looking back over, you know, 50 years now. Of, of practice. And of course, you know, nobody ever used the word and now you hear it everywhere. Um, mindfulness means a, a number of different things. Um, one of my favorite definitions of mindfulness is a quality of awareness of what's happening in the present moment, whether we're looking at something internal or external, whatever it is, where our perception of what's happening is not so distorted by bias. You know, uh, an example would be of what we usually do is maybe we feel discomfort in our bodies or we feel heartache, we feel disappointment. And right away we start thinking, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next year? And so not only do we have the actual experience, we have all that anticipation and we've added it on top and it's, it's then unbearable because it's so massive. So that would be just one example. Or maybe there's an emotion we've long felt that's not right to feel. And here it is. I did just celebrate my 50th anniversary of being a meditator. And so now I have a new thing I can say to myself, you've been meditating for 50 years. Why is that still there? You know, like whatever it is, it is still there, whatever we're experiencing. And uh, we don't need to add, you know, the judgment and the chastisement. It's like, let's deal with it. Uh, and then we'll have the energy to deal with it if we're not adding all that stuff. So mindfulness is the ability to be with our experience in a cleaner, clearer way, because we can see the difference between what's actually happening 
and everything we may be superimposing on it and be able to let go of that stuff. And that's why it's the vehicle for insight, because we can see so much more clearly. We can develop mindfulness a thousand different ways, probably a million different ways. Uh, meditation, as I learned it, is it's like strength training. It's like a little immersive period, whether you're doing it for five minutes or 10 minutes or a month-long retreat or whatever. Um, you're sitting down or walking. The posture doesn't matter, but you're saying for this next period, my intention is to try to deepen qualities like awareness and compassion. I'm not also going to figure out my strategic plan. You know, that may come up, but that's different than sitting down with that intention. So it's just like we, we usually call meditation uh, these dedicated periods of time of however long where we're cultivating the strength of mindfulness and centeredness and so on. So would it be appropriate to say that mindfulness is kind of just a, the cultivation of pure, gentle, non-judgmental awareness? Yeah. That's a lovely way of putting it. And, I, you know, I think it's within our capacity to do, you know. Sometimes we think, I used to think that, you know, I'll try really hard and it'll be like climbing a mountain. Someday I'll get to the summit and I'll have a moment of mindfulness. And it's not like that. It's right here. But for us, it tends to be quite intermittent because we get so distracted uh, and so and so judgmental. And so the more we can return to just those moments. Um, I'll also say, you know, in terms of the last question as well, uh, we kind of divide the meditative process into two baskets. One is that formal period where five, 10, 15 minutes you sit down or you're walking back and forth or lying down, whatever, but you're just deepening those qualities. The other we sometimes call short moments many times where it's almost like you're sprinkling a little mindfulness throughout your day. And that makes a difference too. So, Probably the most famous example of that these days comes from uh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, don't pick up your phone in the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe, and then you pick it up. You know, or I've heard from people that maybe they uh, write out the email, and before they press send, they take a few breaths, and then they read it again. So it's just these, nothing takes very long. Or you decide to not multitask, but drink your cup of tea and only drink your cup of tea, not also be checking your email at the same time. So you feel the warmth of the cup. You can smell the tea. You can taste the tea. And that becomes like a, a you know, an itty bitty little act of meditation. And, and that's really helpful too. I've heard of so many different types of meditation. What are some of the major types of, of meditation? Uh, well, if you're talking about that, you could say formal, dedicated period, not so much the moments. Um, there are many types, and I think that it's like an experiment. You know, we get the chance to see, well, what's interesting to me or what's challenging for me in a good way. You know, th there are lots of possibilities there, and... Um, one way of seeing it is that there's certain forms of meditation 
which are really about mindfulness. They're about seeing more clearly what our experience is, bringing us closer to what is happening in our bodies and our minds with some perspective and, and some spaciousness. There are other forms of meditation, which I tend to teach a lot, um, like gratitude reflections or loving kindness meditation, or which are about, um, I call them a stretch. You know, it's like rather than being so devoted to simply getting closer to our experience as it is, they're more about, I would say, realizing that I have certain ruts of attention, like thinking about myself at the end of the day, if I have that habit to evaluate myself when pretty well only remembering the mistakes I've made and the things I didn't do right and what could have gone better, let's just say, then we stretched, like wishing ourselves well. It's offering ourselves the gift of, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? It's like a blessing, a self-blessing. And uh, we think about all the people we may encounter or have encountered in our lives um, uh, it may be a little different now, you know, we call them essential workers, but, you know, maybe we, we shop in the same place. Generally speaking, we see pretty well the same people behind the cash register and, and it may not strike us that this is like a person just like me, you know, uh, because we tend to objectify people or we're in a hurry uh, we're very busy, we have so much to do, you know, so we don't necessarily really look at people that we encounter in, in these ways. And so what happens when we stop and we look at someone instead of through them, even in our hearts, you know, and wish them well, not know, knowing their name, maybe, or, or too much about them, but we think, well, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, you know, may, may your life go easily, something like that. Um, gratitude practice is the perfect example of that because, uh, you know, many psychologists or researchers would say that one of the most healing things any of us could do is keep a gratitude journal, like write down three things at the end of the day that you're grateful for from the day. And I always say that um, it doesn't have to be magnificent, you know. It doesn't have to be gigantic. That your breathing is like is a good thing, you know? And I also always say, because it's true, this doesn't come naturally to me. Like my personal conditioning, my familial conditioning, my cultural conditioning is such, I'm so much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about what I can complain about. What I didn't do right, or someone didn't show up for me. And back in the days when I was traveling all the time, it was always an airline, you know? And so it's a stretch for me. It's like intentionality, not coercion, but intentionality. Like, what else happened today? What's the good in my life? So there's a whole range of meditations that are kind of like that as well. And most people I know do some of each, you know, like you spend a certain amount of time just trying to get closer to what your experience actually is. And then you, you know, you try out like that, that kind of stretch. Okay, I gotta ask this question because I personally feel like I got a tree fall. I hear people who meditate talk about the monkey mind. <laughs> what is the monkey mind? Um, 
most of us have um, a tendency toward distraction in a number of ways. Uh, if let's say you're um, meditating, you're, you have an object of meditation, you're trying to place your attention on that object, usually it's not very long. Like the very first instruction when I did get to India and I found a teacher that was very practical, very direct. The first instruction I got was sit and feel your breath. Just sit and feel the normal natural breath as it as it comes in and goes out. And my first thought was that is so stupid. You know, like I came all the way to India. It was the magical esoteric fantastic technique that's gonna wipe out all my suffering and make me a totally happy person. Like could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. And then I thought, ha, huh? how hard can this be? You know, what'll it be like? 900 breaths, 1,000 breaths before my mind wanders. And to my absolute astonishment, it was like one breath or maybe half a breath, and I'd be gone, and I'd be way gone. It's just the way our minds are conditioned. They say when we go to the past, it's not often in a useful way, which is a possibility. It's more in a useless way. And especially going back to things that we now have some regret about, but we're not thinking about those things with an eye to how to make amends or for lessons learned. We're just going over it and over it and over it and over it. And or, and I'd say in a time like ours, especially and, we jump into the future and we create a scenario that has not happened. That may never happen. And we're filled with anxiety about that. So we're all over the place. Um, and noticing that is considered a good insight. We all feel dreadful about it, but it's actually a good thing to see because it's been going on anyway. And so, you know, we're not, again, trying to annihilate the tendencies of our minds, but develop a different relationship to them. So we see we're way in the past in this useless kind of way. We practice letting go. We practice coming in, back into the moment. We see we're filled with anxiety. We can feel it in our bodies over some imaginary situation. And we think, well, I don't need that on top of what is already happening. You know, you learn to let go of that. And so it's out of a lot of kindness toward yourself that, you know, you learn not to be so lost in these tendencies, but the very tendencies for like all that stuff to be going on is what's called the monkey mind. And, um, to switch animals for a moment, you know, sometimes it's likened to training a puppy. You know, you just say, okay, you sit, and then the puppy is all over the place. And you think, no, 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 sit, sit. And you can give it a treat. You know, you can you can actually train it. And there's such a kind of tenderness, you know, rather than dislike and rejection in, in that training. This is Bishop Heather Shea of United Palace of Spiritual Arts. We'll return in a minute with Sharon Salzberg. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our open heart conversation on meditation. Meditation. 
that's really sort of an interesting thing. I, I was going to actually follow up by asking, what should our if if meditation is about our relationship to our mind, what should our relationship be to the monkey mind? And in a sense, you just answered that. It's that there is our relationship should be one of compassion and tenderness at, at the very core. Yeah. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. No, I think that's beautifully put, and, and it's very true. Um, you know, we are empowered by having choice, and we have choice when there's some space. I think one of my favorite descriptions of mindfulness actually came from uh, an article I read in the New York Times many, many years ago about one of the first pilot programs bringing mindfulness into schools. Now there, there are many more, but this was really very early on. And this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, California. So the kids are like nine or 10 years old. And um, the journalist asked one of the kids, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he responded by saying, Mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought that is a great definition of mindfulness. Because what does it imply? It implies you know you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry. Not after you've sent the email. You know, not after you've lashed out at somebody, but when it's just beginning. It also implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger. Because if you just get consumed by those feelings and you lose all centeredness all the time, you're likely to hit a lot of people in the mouth because life can be really frustrating. But at the same token, if you hate what you're feeling and you're ashamed of it and you try to deny it and you try to repress it, you just get tighter and tighter and tighter till you explode. So that doesn't work. We say mindfulness is like the place in the middle where you're totally aware and connected to what's actually going on, but there's some space. So you're not consumed by it. You're not pushing it away. And in that space, options may arise. Creativity may arise. I like to think of that kid having created that space, thinking, hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. Maybe I'll try this. So that empowers us. You know, maybe you're going to go for it. Maybe you're not. But it's up to you. You're not just sort of driven by what's appearing in your mind. In follow-up to um, to Reverend Rob's question, um, many many of us, when we hear the word meditation, we think of somebody sitting in lotus position, usually in a cushion, um, saying nothing, doing nothing, very calm, very quiet, very still. And yet, I've also spoken to folks who meditate who actually do very different kinds of meditation, the walking meditation, for example, which I know is big in Zen. I've had friends talk to me about how they meditate when they cook or undertake other forms of activities. Is it possible to actually have, can meditation be done in, in this kind of an active way? Yeah, I, I, it certainly can be done. And um, walking meditation is a part of many traditions. Um, of meditation and it's totally viable. It's not like second best, you know, um, I had read something about a monk in the Buddhist time. Who's every time he sat down to meditate, he felt completely asleep. So for 60 years, his entire practice was walking meditation. I said, Oh, look at that. There's a practice for everybody, you know, and the very uh, classical eating meditations or, you know, I wasn't joking about drinking tea. It's like, 
could be a meditation. And a friend of mine, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a researcher at the University of North Carolina, has done a study on people just practicing those moments, those short activities, and found that it really does make a significant difference. My um, personal experience, and therefore my recommendation in teaching, is that I have found that those um, relatively short, dedicated periods where I'm only sitting or only walking toward trying to cultivate awareness and balance and compassion and so on are the best platform for me then being able to drink the cup of tea mindfully or, you know, or going back to what Thich Nhat Hanh recommended. It's like, who remembers to breathe when your phone rings, you know, like you just grab it. In fact, I once um, went into a finance firm in New York and, and I said that in the course of the talk and I looked up and I saw the complete panic on everyone's faces. And I said, well, maybe for you just twice, you know, just let it ring twice and then you pick it up. Uh, but you will remember so much more likely uh, in an easier way if you also got that little immersive period. So it's like strength training. It's not essential, but I just find it's so helpful. So it's like for once trying to do something in the easiest way possible um, can really make a difference. Yeah, to that point, uh, Jose, it's just like, you know, for me, I need to get out on the water. You know, that that's my meditative time, whether it's paddleboarding or kayaking. But suddenly, time is gone. Everything else just slips away. And when you have those moments of coming back, hopefully it's not while you're falling in the water. But when you have that moment of coming back, it's like, okay, where am I? I don't remember getting here. It it it's almost like it's muscle memory, but your mind has just relaxed. And I cherish those moments so much. Unfortunately, at the current temperature, not possible. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, you know, many times people say things to me like, um, my best meditation happens when I'm running, when I'm sketching, when I'm dancing, when I'm chanting, when I'm whatever. Why couldn't that be my meditation? And I say, I think it can be your meditation. And I have a kind of prejudice, let's say, toward people also having something that is just completely within the body and the mind, because then it's independent. You know, like if you're at work and someone's freaking out and you're starting to get anxious, you can't like run around the room, you know, necessarily. You can't start swimming. You can't be on the water. So what can you do? You know, and I, I treasure the thought of something like feel the breath because it's so personal. Nobody even has to know you're doing it. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to sit in a pretzelic pose. You don't have to look weird, but you have a way of coming back. And when we come back to ourselves, come back to the moment, we come back to our values. We come back to our priorities. So I want something, even if you spend or you define your meditation practice largely in activity, that seems fine to me, but even a little bit of time cultivating kind of the bare bones stuff, because that will be completely portable wherever you are, whatever you're doing. See, I mentally tell myself that like, if I've got an activity, 
on giving the monkeys something to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is not bad. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Sharon, uh, during the course of, of, um, of your life's work, you have written and spoken significantly on, on compassion and kindness. Um, in fact, it's one of the, the ways in which I got to, in essence, meet you, if you will, uh, oh, many, 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 many years ago. Uh, you were doing a, a lecture essentially on compassion. Can you speak to us about the relationship between meditation and compassion, between meditation and kindness? Well, one of the things I've always felt about um, are kind of the dominant culture in, in the U.S., you know, is that kindness is often seen as a sort of secondary virtue at best. You know, like if you can't be brilliant, you can't be courageous, you can't be wonderful. It's like, okay, be kind. It's nice, you know. Isn't that great? But it's good, you know. And yet it is of greatness. I think if any of us were to reflect on somebody in our lives who had been very kind to us, and we don't think of them with kind of pity or scorn. We're tremendously grateful. Maybe they saw something in us we couldn't see in ourselves, or they gave us a chance in some way, or, you know, extended forgiveness, whatever it was. Um, We're very grateful for that. And so we... um, we can look at kindness in a, in a different light. And that's been very important to me personally. And uh, I think another sort of side controversy to that is um, qualities like loving kindness or kindness or compassion are often seen as weakness, that if we were to cultivate them, we couldn't take a stand about anything. We would lose a kind of intensity of conviction about how we should be treated, how others should be treated. And we're just going to mellow, you know, and, and, uh, in a sentimental kind of way. And that's not true at all. I think it really is a power. It's a source of tremendous strength in trying to make a difference. And the other attendant controversy, uh, which is a very Western issue is the idea that something like compassion or kindness can be trained. Whereas in many Eastern systems, it's just, of course, it can be trained because it's an emergent property of how we pay attention. It's like if we really were to listen to somebody and see ourselves in them in some way, it would be kind of inevitable that we would include them or be kinder. Um, if we understood truly down to our bones the interdependent nature of this universe, then it's like, I mean, of course. Uh, I have a friend, Bob Thurman, who used to be a professor of British studies at Columbia. He just retired. And he uses this example. He um, he says, let's say you're on a subway. So, of course, I like the example because it's very New York. Let's say you're on a subway and these Martians come. And they zap the subway car so that those of you who are in there are going to be together forever. Like, what do you do? Somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily like them or you approve of them, but because you're going to be together forever. Well, guess what? 
there's a truth to that, you know. We share this life, we share this planet. And so our actions almost inevitably would have a kind of measure of kindness because of the way we're seeing the world and the way we're understanding our relationship to others. And so we see kindness as sort of an emergent property of paying attention more fully, more completely, and more honestly. And then uh, it will just happen. So it can be trained. It can be cultivated. It's not just a gift, uh, which is how I often think it's seen in the West, like, you either have it or you don't. It is like a gift. And if you don't, you're out of luck. Uh, it's very much a kind of almost educational process. It's uh, it's really amazing. I have actually struggled for a very long time to understand that relationship. And I, I am not kidding when I say this, Sharon. Given what you've just said, in light of an experience I had this morning, I kind of now get it. Kindness is Kindness is the deepest mindfulness that you can give to another human being. It's the true seeing of the other human being. Um, this morning, I had the privilege of um, of getting my second COVID vaccine. And I, I did it at the same place where I got the first. And so I I brought a little, bo- literally a tiny little box of chocolates to, to give to the, to the nurse um, because they had been really wonderful. And I gave it to her and she, this reaction that, the reaction I got was almost uncomfortable. I mean, she literally cried. And talked about how no one had done that. And, he, and, and, and it's interesting that I now understand that she just felt witnessed and appreciated and seen. That's all. That's all she felt. It meant so much to this person. And that's what kindness does for each of us. That's what we can give another person. That's what we receive in kindness is this, this deep, mindful witness and awareness and seeing of the other person's humanity. And, I, and, it's, and now I see the relationship. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, going back at, to the checkout person in the supermarket, who I think for, for when we teach loving kindness meditation, because there is a technique that really emphasizes that, that strength, uh, one of the categories of people we offer loving kindness to is someone called a neutral person somebody we don't especially like or dislike. And often that is someone who plays a role in our lives where we tend to see them now and then, but, you know, it's not like a very meaningful relationship. And uh, probably for 45 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the supermarket, you know, which would be the kind of person we would tend to look through or overlook or objectify, uh, perhaps, you know, depending on, the situation and so on, the context, but if we're busy, if we're in a rush, if we, you know, don't take the time to really sense them as, as a human being, we, we might well do that. <coughs> so I, you know, being in the habit of suggesting that for so long and nowadays, you know, where it's so clear, like, how do I think I get to eat? You know? Um. Sharon, I, I have a, a question regarding kind of uh, where we can get more information. But before we, we move into that, I, I'd like to explore something with you. Um, um, many, many meditators uh, come to meditation at times rather purely to meditation. They've been uh, inspired by a teacher, a book, uh, a therapist, etc., to just enter into meditation. 
Some come to meditation as a result of specific spiritual paths that they explore. And I think the world knows that uh, for you, meditation has come as a result of your exploration of Buddhism. Um, there are at least three major forms of Buddhism, obviously. And which, which form of Buddhism, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, which, which one of these has been your primary home? And what do you think that home has given you that's been kind of a unique gift um, that's been given to you as a result of exploration of meditation and practice of meditation within that context? Uh, well, the earliest teachers I had, so really my you know foundational teachers, were either Burmese or had themselves studied in Burma. So uh, we, we don't tend to use the word Hinayana, we more say Theravada. Hinayana means lesser vehicles. So from some historical sectarian standpoint, that's what um, it was sometimes called, but I'll, I'll reclaim Theravada instead. And so uh, it's really like the Southern School of Meditation. And I have and still have Tibetan teachers, so that's Mahayana and Vajrayana. Uh, but there's something about that foundational perspective that's very important. So my first teacher was named S.N. Goenka, and he taught these intensive 10-day immersive retreats. That's how he started. So I walked into that compound to learn how to meditate, never having meditated for one second before in my life. And the first night of the first retreat, so that's really my beginning, Goenka said, um, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And that was very appealing to me. I wasn't interested in like becoming a Buddhist or rejecting anything else. I wanted that how to meditate. And, or another one of my teachers a little bit later, same year, but a little bit later, this man named Manindra, um, who was also living in the same town in India said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it was actually a fantastic thing to hear because it felt like, Maybe the first time in my life someone looked at me as though to say, you can solve your problem. You can actually do this. And so uh, that whole approach was very appealing to me. Um, it was very independent. It was about the capacity of the human mind rather than adhering to a dogma. Um, it was really direct. As I mean, as much as I scoffed at the seeming simplicity of the technique, like, what do you mean feel my breath? That's stupid. Um, it wasn't easy. And so it was challenging, but in a good way. And uh, that, that's been really, again, you know, like I, I study often with Tibetans and other, other people, but um, in terms of my own teaching, I feel this is like such a useful vehicle that it's really what I've kept on doing. Wow. You know, this, this conversation has been so enlightening and enriching. Could I be as bold as to ask if you could lead us through a, a five-minute meditation? I think it would be such a treat for ourselves and our audience. Okay, so why don't we uh, just sit comfortably. You can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. See if your back can be straight without being strained or overarched. 
Sometimes people imagine, say, a brick wall behind them and starting from their lowest vertebrae. One by one, they just raise their vertebrae up against the wall and relax. You can start just by listening to sound. It could be the sound of my voice or other sounds. And see if the sounds could just wash through you. Of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them come, let them go. bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Feel the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space and we think about like picking up our finger and poking it in the air. But space is already touching us. It's always touching us. We just have to flip into kind of receptive mode. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can shift from the more conceptual level, like our fingers, to the world of direct sensation, picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. Bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath, on the same level of picking up the sensations. Wherever the breath is clearest to you or strongest for you, maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen, find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. (laughs) 
kind of images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them arise and pass away. You're breathing. You don't need to follow after them. You don't need to fight them. It's just one breath. But if something comes and it like picks you up and captures your attention, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment in the process is the next moment after you've been gone, after you've been completely lost, where we have the chance to be kind to ourselves instead of judgmental, to practice letting go and to practice beginning again. We let go and we come back to the breath. And if you have to do that like a billion times in the next one minute, that's fine. ready you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation you've been listening to our series open heart conversations offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions recorded here at the united palace of spiritual arts please visit us in manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org until next time Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.